0: Hi, I'm Eric Johns. I'm the senior pastor at Bethel Church here in Fairbanks, Alaska. And I wanted just to greet you personally and let you know that we're thrilled that you have found this video in hopes that it would be an encouragement to your spiritual journey. There may be lots of reasons why you're watching the video. Perhaps you're relocating, perhaps you're homesick or traveling or on the road. One thing that's really important to us is that this would be a supplement and not a replacement for coming to a church fellowship. God has been really gracious to not only save us from our sin, but to save us into the body of Christ. And church is a place where we come to fellowship with one another, to walk out our spiritual life together under the care and instruction of our pastors and elders. So I'm glad you found this content, and I hope to see you in church real soon. God bless. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans 5, That's our text this morning. I don't know how long it's been since the last time you applied for a job. Uh, Maybe it's recent. Maybe it was long ago. Maybe you hope to never have another job again. Um, But whenever we apply for a new job, uh, we are definitely interested in a series of questions such as, well, what's the job description, right? Uh, What are the measurable results that you might be looking for from me? Who do I report to? How do I, or what do I get paid? Or how does one get a raise? What opportunities for advancement might there be? And of course, what are the benefits? What are the benefits of this job? Are there, uh, is there retirement? Is there health insurance, vision, optical, whatever? Uh, My son Aiden is uh, finishing his uh, senior year, amazingly, at Biola, And has signed a contract with um, an accounting firm in Seattle called Deloitte. And he shared with me the benefit package that he got. And it was annoying because it was about four pages long, job number one out of school. And I was like, good grief. One of the benefits, amazingly, in this job is um, they give you a yearly $1,000 mental health bonus to spend how you want. So if you want $1,000 worth of coffee go ahead. If you want to buy a Nintendo, go ahead. Like, doesn't matter. Just, here you go. I thought, that's crazy. You knucklehead. I can't believe first job you've got that. <laughs> but that's not, the, that's not the craziest benefit I've seen. Uh, we live in Alaska, after all. And uh, about uh, six months ago, I saw a company in town, it was a plumbing company that was hiring, and they listed the benefits. And one of the benefits in the list was $600 annually towards ammunition or firearms. <laughs> I thought, wow, okay, all right, that's Alaska. So, uh, so yeah, if you're on the business board here, maybe th- consider throwing that into our uh, benefits. Or fly rod, whatever, we can, you know. No, um, I think, and actually what we find here in the next 12 verses that we're looking at are, it's almost like Paul is saying, here are the benefits of what it is to be a Christian, to be justified by faith. Here are the benefits, both present and future. And I think this is important for us and helpful for us to just see it sort of explicitly laid out. Of course, this isn't exhaustive, but it's, there's a lot listed here. Uh, there are things in our life that are so familiar, so common, that we can almost take them for granted, right? Um, things like our home. We have a home to live in. It's great we just kind of expect it or our church building been here 50 years and we're thrilled to have this place Uh, or easy access to food we just go to Fred's or any Thai food place in town we want to and aren't we blessed with Thai food right the friends that we have in our life the space that we have here in Alaska Nice to travel outside every now and then, but I don't know about you, when you go outside and you run into all the people everywhere, I'm like, get me home, where I have some elbow room, I'm getting claustrophobic. Or the number of roundabouts we get to drive around here, right? Thank you, DOT. Nice. So there are plenty of things, I think, that we can just sort of take for granted because they've become so familiar and just common in our life, like oxygen to breathe, like gravity that holds us down, like the sun that rises again. We just start taking them for granted. And one of those things is is what we experience in our salvation as well. As a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you might just think, yeah, I'm saved, but I'm just so familiar, so accustomed to being saved that I almost forget how those benefits are visited, not just in the future, but upon my, my present life. And so Paul lays out for us seven benefits of being justified by faith. That's what we're going to look at together. So Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son... How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so as we work through this, we're going to start just kind of one at a time here and work through these seven and build this benefits package together here. Because we have been justified by faith, for starters, we have peace with God. Peace with God. As I get older, um, this word becomes more and more meaningful uh, to me. Uh, Peace becomes, I think, more and more elusive, and it's more and more attractive. Uh, Probably every person here in the room, at least at one time, has had some sort of season or a time where you carried around sort of this dark cloud, this heaviness, this weight, something was off in your life, and and it was just oppressive, and you carried it with you, that kind of thing that makes you sick to your stomach, lump in your throat, just this fear, anxiety that you you carry around. It could be something like an expectation of losing your job. Maybe finances at the business are not good. You're a low man on the totem pole, and you're just hoping you can hang on, but feels like no, and you carry that weight. Uh, Maybe you had some uh, went into a lab, had some lab work done, and are waiting for the test results of something that sounds like it could be scary. And you can't get it out of your mind. It's just there, and it just, you carry it around with you, waiting and waiting. Or maybe you have a, a scary pregnancy, and you're living with it right now, and you're literally carrying around what is a worry and a concern. Past pregnancies haven't gone so well, so you, you're hopeful about this one, but it's, it's weighty. I think we've all experienced this kind of sort of deep and and prolonged anxiety, and it, it keeps you up. You worry and worry. You're not at peace. And while all of our lives have probably gone through a season like this or another, consider the pervasive anxiety, the continual worry, the way life is unsettled, the constant fear of one who does not know their sins paid for in Christ. Consider that weight that is carried around with them. How unsettling for the person who knows that every day, every hour, every moment is a step closer towards the end of their life when they don't know what the end of their life will bring. What kind of fear and anxiety and discomfort does that bring? They're certain of death, but uncertain about eternity and they live with this constant gnawing in their mind, they have no peace. In contrast to that, we who have been justified by faith in Christ's sacrifice have peace with God. We know that. And that completely changes the way that we live in this life. Those who know their sins and know that Christ paid for them and know that they have this by faith, have peace with God. It changes everything. Uh, This might be sort of so ingrained in in your expectation in your day-to-day life that you almost forget to remember it. But the implications of this peace, it it, it has a wonderful application for us. It means that in this, this life, it's not that it's unimportant, but it's no longer all important, right? I have a life to come. Eternal life awaits me. I have an eternal home that is filled with the goodness of God. I don't have to scratch and claw for every advantage here on this earth for the short time that I have. And honestly, I I think that lack of peace with God is why much of the unbelieving world operates the way that it does. This is all the time they've got. So they've got to be competitive and hedonistic and to live in an easily offended way, right? That's a word for our cultural moment right now, easily offended but we are those who have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace that we now stand. That is a beautiful picture of the assurance and the confidence that we can have right now. We have been transitioned by God from enemies to friends, from sinners to saints, those who were under his wrath to those who are covered by Christ from those who were thrashing about in an unsettled life now to those who are now into this grace that we now stand. We have peace with God, and that is our present experience. And I just want to bring that to your mind in case you have forgotten it or forgotten to remember it and encourage you to live into that. Secondly, we can boast in the glory to come. Right? And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So right now, presently, we get to see just glimpses of the glory of God, just glimpses of it. I I don't know about you, but this past week, just looking at the sunrises in the morning, is it always October or has this week been a special week in your mind? I I don't know the answer to that. But it has been stunning. And you can walk out in the morning and just go, I mean, I did, I even posted on social media, it's like, good morning to you, God, you know, thank you for this, this is beautiful. Beautiful. So we get these glimpses of the glory of God Uh, in a sunrise or say the northern lights or you look at the Alaska range and you get a perfect sort of alpine glow when the light hits it just right Uh, or a beautiful rainbow trout pulled from the stream. You knew it was coming. Frosted branches of a birch tree. Belly laugh of a baby. Anything better than that? Loyalty of a friend forgiveness from our spouse, or a really good meal at the end of a hard day, right? We get these glimpses of this glory, so to speak. And these, I think, are gifts from God, but they are just they're just foretastes of a much greater glory that is to come. I will call them pockets of shalom, pockets of peace. And, you know, we have them for a moment, and then we move on into the warp and woof of our day, and then oh, maybe another one later on. But when eternity comes, when the kingdom of God is fully realized, we will move from glory to glory, from goodness to goodness, from beauty to beauty, with no gaps in between. It will be everywhere. All things as they ought to be. Um, Isaiah 2 paints a picture of this, of this time, Uh, and I want to read it to you uh, this morning, Isaiah 2, um, 2 through 5. And as I'm reading this, I want you to consider this picture in contrast to the violence that we are seeing in the Middle East right now. Hear the contrast. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore come descendants of jacob let us walk in the light of the lord this is a beautiful picture that the prophet isaiah gives to us and paul means for us to take comfort in sort of that future hope right now that that is something even to boast in to boast in the glory of god and not We're not boasting in ourselves, we're not boasting in our church, we're not boasting in our family or in our wealth, but to boast in the hope of the glory of God. And this is a sure hope, because as we saw last week, more than just being delivered over to death for our sins, he was raised to life for our justification. Listen to how A.W. Tozer describes sort of this peace and comfort uh, that we, we can have in the coming glory of God. Listen to this. How completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. Eternal years lie in his heart. For him or for him time does not pass. It remains. And those who are in Christ share with him all the riches of limitless time and endless years. God never hurries. There are no deadlines against which he must work. Only to know this is to quiet our spirits, to relax our nerves. For those out of Christ, time is a devouring beast. Before the sons of the new creation, time crouches and purrs and licks their hands. I like that, even with the cat reference at the end there. (laughs) A third point. We can even glory in our present sufferings. So there is this sure hope, something we can boast in in the future, It has a present value for us. And that is deeply encouraging. It means that this life that we're living is not just, you know, in circle in the drain until the Lord comes. It's not that we're just in, you know, uh, what is it, hell's waiting room or death's waiting room? Isn't that what they call Florida? Death's waiting room. (laughs) I didn't make it up. So if you don't like that, someone else said it. I just repeated it. We have a future hope. And that future hope has present value. It fundamentally changes the way we go through life and how we handle our experiences, good, bad, and otherwise, but particularly our sufferings, right? Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I read this point, and I believe this by faith, but I also kind of put an asterisk next to this and say, this is a growth area for Eric. This is a growth area for me. I do not glory in my sufferings. And I'll start off by saying my sufferings, and I'm going to throw you in there too, our sufferings pale in comparison to much of the suffering in the world, right? We suffered little, But I don't even glory in my little sufferings. I really don't. Um, I try to get out of them as quick as possible. Ease them. Alleviate it. Uh, I definitely whine about it, especially as I get older. I whine more and more. My good friend Jerry um, has a saying that he shares with me often. He says, endeavor to persevere. That's what he tells me. And I want to add uh, something to that. The reality is, that's not just a human effort. But God has put a power and an agency within us, poured into us to enable us to do just that. And that is God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit has been poured out, given to us, into our lives, and mediates to us the love of God in our hearts so that we would know that we are loved. Not just by mere mental or cognitive powers, but by something spiritual, the Spirit of God mediating to us that assurance of His love, and that helps us to persevere. A number of years ago, our kids, when they were very little, um, they went over to some friend's house, and from this encounter, I experienced one of the best compliments I've ever gotten in my life, and I'm not, it's not really common for me to share, oh, these were one of my better compliments, but this, this connects. Um, we took our kids over and um, we came back to receive them. And so these were some dear, dear friends of ours from the church watching our kiddos. And then their two adult sons were there as well. And when we got back to, to pick them up, uh, the mom came to us and, and repeated something that her son had said. Her, she wanted us to know that her son had observed that these kids, and I was like, oh boy, what, what's coming next, right? He says this, you could tell you could just tell that those kids are loved. That was very meaningful for me to hear that. And I thought there was a lot of other things that could have been said, right? These kids, you can tell that these kids get a lot of screen time. (laughs) You can tell these kids have never been told no in their life. You could tell these kids get all the sugar they want. There could have been a million things that could have been said, but no, you can tell these kids are loved. And I think that's a great picture of the witness that Christians ought to have in the world as well. That people would encounter us and just say, you can tell that these kids are loved. There is an assurance. There is a peace. There is a calm. There is a sure hope. There is a demeanor and an affect of peace upon them because they know that they have been loved by God. They don't have to go through life with this fret and this worry, wringing their hands, constantly afraid. They're at peace with God. So the Holy Spirit of God mediates to our hearts the very love of God, and this assurance anchors us for the days to come and for the days right here and right now. And this hope is not just wishful thinking. It's not just lottery thinking. It's not just whimsical whatever, right? This hope is anchored in something, and that's the next point. It is anchored and displayed in the cross of Christ. We possess a hope anchored in the sure love of God, which has been demonstrated. Verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, God died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God, some of the best words in all of scripture, right? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what were the virtues that we brought to this salvation? Why was it that God loved us? Why was it that God died for us? What about us was so lovely? Well, what is it about us that makes God love us? Well, the only answer to this is nothing, right? What were we? Powerless and ungodly. Those are the virtues we brought to the table. In fact, this is what Jesus means when he says, when he talks about childlike faith. This is often misunderstood in our culture. A lot of people think, well, childlike faith is just simple faith. It's not thoughtful faith. It's not reasonable faith. It's just very simple faith. That's not what Jesus is teaching at all. What he's teaching about childlike faith is vulnerability, dependency, absolute need. No merit can do nothing for themselves. Listen to how he teaches this in Matthew 18, uh, verse 2. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you were to come and say, if God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What do you got? What's so good about you? And you said any kind of virtue, wrong. Instead, we need to say, I got nothing. Powerless, ungodly. I need your help. So there are wrong answers to um, job interviews, right? You've probably heard sort of the classic one. When you're asked the question... Where do you see yourself in five years? The wrong answer is, in your seat. I want your job, right? That's a, we all know that's a wrong answer. And um, that reminds me of an interview I did with a youth pastor candidate many, many years ago. Uh, one of the first questions that I got my, uh, raised, raised my eyes a little bit, I asked what his hobbies were. And he said, mixed martial arts. And I thought about it for a second. I'm like, okay, well, that, that's all right. I don't know this guy. Like, that could be okay. And then my mind is thinking about kids being thrown around in the youth room in the basement. <laughs> this could be an issue. I don't know. Then the next question, which clinched it for me in the interview, I said, uh, Describe your wife's personality. And he says, Flirtatious. <laughs> He's buried in a shallow grave, you know, just outside of town somewhere, right? <laughs> Can you imagine? Like either one, she she is, and then no. Or two, she's not, and you said so, and that's also no. There's a no-go right there. Uh, Made me think of a fun game to develop would be um, a question game like, would you rather, but instead it would be wrong answers only. Wouldn't that be a fun sort of conversational game? There are wrong answers to questions. And if asked by God, "Hey, I see that you're applying for salvation here. Okay, what are your qualifications? What do you got? And you were to say... Good person. I've I've done more good than bad. Grandma took me to church. Wrong answer. You're getting in your own way here. The only answer to the only right answer to that question is powerless, ungodly. I got nothing. And God would say, We can work with that. We got you. So, in terms of our candidacy for justification, powerless, ungodly, like a child needing total intervention from God. The passage that we're looking at this morning is is one of those passages which keeps me from being, this could be sort of a controversial point here, but keeps me from being what we call a full five-point Calvinist. So yes, we're going to mention sort of the Calvinist discussion here. Uh, If you don't know what this is, if you turn your hand out over on the back, uh, I've given you just a picture of what are known as the doctrines of grace and the acronym TULIP. And I will start by saying, we don't have an official teaching position here at the church on this. Uh, your pastors all lean sort of Reformed or Calvinistic. Most of us are like a four-pointer or a four-and-a-half-pointer. So I'll lead in with that. And the issue for me, so you can see it on the back, total depravity, which means sin has affected all of us. Uh, these are really short summations. Unconditional election. There's nothing in us by that, that God looked upon us and said, oh, because of this, I'm going to elect them to salvation. The third one is limited atonement, and that's the one I have an issue with. So you could put an asterisk next to that one. That's where I find myself to be a four-pointer or four-and-a-half-pointer. Because those who hold to this will say something like, Christ died only for the elect, and I take issue with that. And then we have Irresistible Grace and Perseverance of the Saints. And I'm not going to go into those just now. But the reason I have an issue with that third one, Limited Atonement, is because of a handful of passages of Scripture. Maybe for starters, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. So fairly simple there. But even more of a clincher on this issue for me is 1 John 2.2. 2. Which says this, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. So I look at that and I can't come to the conclusion that Christ died only for the elect or that God only loves the elect. To me, the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for the whole world, but will only be applied to some. And that's why I find myself as a four-pointer. The implications of that and the passage we're looking at today is this. There is not a person on earth for whom Christ did not die. There is not a person on earth who is not in need of this sacrifice. There is not a person on earth who can't be saved by his sacrifice if they receive it by faith. And I want to be able to declare that loud and clear. And I think that's what this passage teaches as well. At just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So our fifth point here. We know that God has demonstrated his love for the ungodly. It's been demonstrated. It's not just been stated It's not just been claimed. It's been shown. One of the most astounding things about the love of God is that it's not given because we are lovely, but simply because God himself is love. So God loves people before they behave right. He loves them before they believe right. He loves them before they get right with him through repentance and faith. God's love is first. It is full It is perfect, it is unconditional, unchanging, and unalterable, and he has it for every one of us here right now. How do we know? Because he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And our sixth point is this. We know we are saved from his future wrath. Verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood... How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So we're reminded here that we're not just saved from the future wrath to come, but also how confident we can be in his salvation here and now, in our present standing. No reason to be insecure about future judgment for the person who is justified by faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. There's nothing to fear for the future. If we are loved enough to be rescued while we were ungodly, how much more will we be spared when he has declared us to be righteous? Right? He paid for us when we were ungodly. Of course, he will rescue us when we are declared righteous. And this brings us to our seventh point. And I'm going to ask for you to do a little editing this morning because pastor made a mistake on this one. So let me, let me read the passage and then I'll go into my mistake. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This last um, passage here, I really battled it this week in my study and my preparation. I got to the end of the week and I thought, I just... I don't think I have this down yet, but I had to turn in my notes so they could be printed for you. So I want to edit my notes. I want you to cross out the words um, saved and beautiful. And instead of the word saved, I want you to write the word kept. And next to beautiful, I would have you write the word eternal. And let me kind of unpack this and, and how I got to this sort of dilemma and why I want to make the correction um, Dallas Willard has been a, a favorite author of mine. Um, he's written this book called Spirit of the Disciplines. I read this last millennium <laughs> when I was a college student. And it was very impactful for me. And there's a chapter in here titled Salvation is a Life. And when, he first, when I first kind of got this co- concept of salvation is not just this day to come down the line, but there is a salvation that we live in in the here and now That was really eye-opening for me and really wonderful. And Dallas Willard uses this passage, uh, verse 10, uh, how much more will we be saved through his life, to support that particular position. So here's how I have taught that position in the past, that in discipleship to Jesus, God is giving us our lives back. He made us to be human. It's a good thing to be human. And Christ himself came as a human, and when he ascended into heaven, he didn't shed his humanity, but he stepped into its fullness. To be human is a good thing, but when we sin, we live as distorted humans. We live in a sub-human way. So as we practice discipleship and obedience to Christ and imitate him, we are leaning into a full humanity. He is giving us our life back, our humanity back. Or let me think about it this way. I want you to think about a Labrador Retriever. Do we have anybody in here who's got a Labrador Retriever? We have a chocolate lab at home. Anybody else? You all have cats. Is that a couple of them? <laughs> I want you to think about an untrained Labrador Retriever and a well-trained Labrador Retriever. The untrained Labrador Retriever is a nightmare. High energy, food monger, jumping, barking, looking for something to do, get me going. Lots of energy, no direction, right? That's a Labrador, untrained Labrador retriever. But to one who is well-trained, they see the guns being taken out and go, oh, it's time to go. And they get excited and they jump into the truck all by themselves. Let's go. And you get out to the blind or whatever, maybe you're doing some bird hunting or duck hunting And they settle in beside you and they wait and they watch the air and they're excited when the guns go off and they get the signal, they listen and they jump in the water, delighted to swim, going ferociously to where that bird fell in. And then with a soft mouth, they carefully pick it up and turn around and bring it back to you, living into the fullness of the way they were bred, right? Like, this is what I was made for. I'm so glad we get to do this. There's the contrast between untrained and trained when we are not following in discipleship to Jesus, we are like this untrained lab that's just going nuts in the world. Not meeting our full potential, not living as God intended us to be. But when we live in imitation to Jesus, we live into our design and our plan and how God made us to be. And so that point is true. Salvation is a life. I think Dallas Willard is absolutely right about that. In our apprenticeship to Jesus, we are getting our lives back. Here's the problem. I don't think it comes out of this passage. That's not what Paul's doing. And my, one of my heroes, Dallas Willard, I think made a mistake. I think he proof texted his concept instead of letting it come out of the text. What is Paul saying here? I think Paul is saying this. If by death Christ secured us, how much in eternal life will he keep us? If, if he bought us through death, how much will he keep us? How much more will he keep us in eternal life? I think that's what Paul is saying here. All of this passage is meant to give us this incredible security in our everyday life based upon what Christ has done for us on the cross. The passage begins in verse 3. We boast in the hope of the glory of Christ. And verse 11, it concludes, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All in all, it reminds us, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who condemns himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these benefits that you have given to us because of faith in Christ because of our justification before you. Lord, we see these benefits are not just future. They are that, but that future hope is visited upon us in our present life. Lord, may we live securely from that place, as those to whom the Spirit of God mediates your sure love, our assurance of our full justification and glory to come. May we be those kinds of kids right now in the day-to-day of whom others would say, you can tell those children are loved. May that be our witness. We pray in Christ's name, amen.